We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. As we pick back up in Matthew chapter 6 tonight, uh, one of the challenges of, of the way we set this walk through the Sermon on the Mount is we intentionally wanted to kind of to survey, to, to cover the whole thing in, in about 11 weeks. And as we've gone through it, I, I realize there's such a struggle. I feel like last week's text we could have had about six individual sermons through there. And then tonight's text, we're going to cover three, four major issues. And as a teacher, you always want to like make sure all the points are covered. And that's a real challenge here. So I went to Mike and Corey and said, hey, can I have about six more weeks for these passages? But they vetoed me. So we're going we're gonna to keep skating through. Um, if you'll pick up and, and look and in chapter 6, Jesus gives us the theme of this next section right off the bat. And it's very clear. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have your reward from your Father. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. You know, it's really clear. Jesus sort of sort of makes this idea really that, that there's one opportunity for reward, that, you, that, that your acts of righteousness are going to produce one reward. And, and it's really the idea that you're going to choose which rewards you want. So you can choose to practice your righteousness in front of people and get your reward from people, or you can practice your rewards in secret and receive your reward from God. And he's going to move forward, and he's going to give us three big illustrations of, of how that works. And these illustrations aren't like the top three things. This is a representative example about the righteousness and about the way that we walk before God. And, and as we look at these three examples, you're going to see uh, a parallel formula that's really striking. It jumps off the page. Uh, and you're going to see that Jesus is making a clear point repetitively. And, and a lot of guys say that this is really, this next section we're going to cover tonight is kind of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, because this talks about our righteous acts, our heart condition before God, that this is sort of the application of what we've been talking about to this point. Uh, so as we look at the first example, he says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Uh, notice he says when, when you give to the needy, not if you give the needy, if you choose to give to the needy, if you happen to give the needy, but when you give to the needy, he's assuming a level of righteousness among these people, a faithfulness that they have. And it's an admonition even to us that this isn't really an optional add-on to our faith. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. You know, the trumpet, they're in a direct relation in the first century, but, but Jesus is just making the point that when you give, it's not to be something that's flamboyant. That this idea of alms in the first century, primarily alms were given to the temple and the poor were taken care of by the money that was given to the temple. So this was your contribution that you made to help the needy. And Jesus is saying, don't be flamboyant about it. 
You know, the Greeks and the Romans didn't even have a category for this because in their culture, you gave in order to receive benefit, that people would think highly of you, that it would help your social status if you gave to the needy. And Jesus is saying something counter to that here. Both give to the needy, but what does Jesus say? No trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. That word hypocrites is the idea. It comes from the theater. It's the idea of wearing a mask and, and actors were thought of. The, the Roman laws treated actors a lot of the same way they treated prostitutes, that these were not highly thought of people. The hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Why did they give in such an obvious way that they would be praised by others? That's the way they did it. And Jesus said, truly. You know, when he says truly, he's pointing to two things. One is it's the certainty of the thing. Jesus says, truly, it's going to happen. But the second is his authority. We've seen this back in chapter 5, that Jesus is speaking with someone who has authority. He has authority to tell you it, and he has the power to make sure that it's true. So he's not making a suggestion here, let me give you a tip for your giving. He's saying, what I'm telling you now is true, so live like it. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. They've received their word in full. So if, if I give my gift in public and the public acknowledges my gift, then I've received my reward in full. It's, it's really this business term. He's saying businessmen, oftentimes when they, when they paid a bill, they would give you a notice and it said this payment is in full. So that if you presented that bill later on, the payer would say, no, you've got a notice that says your bill has been paid in full. And what Jesus is saying basically, and it's, it's, it's important that we know here, he's not saying if people notice it. He's not saying if it, if it happens to happen in public, what's he pointing at? He's pointing at your motivation. He says, if you do this like the hypocrites, if you do this to, to get the praise of men, then you've received your payment in full. You know, the issue 100% is the motivation. So we have a choice when we give. We give to be noticed by men, or we give in secret to be noticed by God. What's your motivation when you give? Don't let the left hand, he says, truly I say to you, they've received the reward. But when you give, so it's a contrast, but when you give to the needy, don't let the left hand know what your right hand is doing. Can you think of a more extreme example of secrecy? I mean, it's impossible, right, for me to do something with my right hand that my left hand can't do. And that's, that's the point, that's the hyperbolic statement Jesus is making here, is that, hey, don't let the left hand do this with such secrecy that it's clear that your motivation is for me. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
You know, it's interesting here. The the idea of the father who sees in secret will reward you is contrasted with this idea back in verse 2 that they've received their reward reward in full. That's a past tense completed statement. They've received all they're going to get. But this idea that the father who sees in secret will reward you, it's an ongoing thing. It's almost like there will be no point in the future in our reward in heaven where we've received it all in full. That if you give in secret to please the Father, your reward will be ongoing. So you've got a choice. I've got a choice. Is my righteousness, are the righteous deeds that I'm doing for God or are they for men? Now, what's interesting, though, is, is, is that as we think about this, you want to go back a few weeks. Now, wait a minute. A few weeks ago, Mike preached about my faith, and it's to be salt and light in the community. So are you saying that I've got to live in such secret ways that no one will know? And that's not what Jesus is pointing to here. Again, these acts may be external acts. They may be acts that people notice. The point is what's happening in your heart when you do it, when you exercise your gifts, when you carry out, when you give, is your desire to be noticed. And so the big idea in this passage really that Jesus is making has everything to do with our motives. But what about giving? You know, in the New Testament, there's no mandate for a tithe, but most people see that as, they, they see the Old Testament tithe. I, th- I think if we unpack it a little bit, we might say, you know, the Old Testament tithe is kind of, should be our starting point. Not a measure of 10%, but the idea that that was an Old Testament guide. But, but, but what we in the New Testament, we as believers in the church say is all of it's God's. So I'm going to give out of the abundance. I'm going to give to others. Uh, Consider our wealth. Think about where we are. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but I remember 10 years ago, they, they, people were sharing this salary calculator, and it, and it kind of showed you, hey, put your salary in, and your salary is, is such and such percent. You know, you make more money than X percent of people in the United States. And so even if you put in like an average salary in the U.S., when you expanded that to globally, it was like you were in the top 95%. And I think about how much we've been giving, how much most of us have, and yet there's also that general principle that those with the most typically tend to be the stingiest. Those with the most tend to to hold on more tightly to what they have. Study after study shows that to be true. But but we can be challenged by Paul's word in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I read one study that said evangelicals a decade ago gave 2.8% of their income. And in the last decade, that number's dropped from 2.8% to 2.4%. Read about one church who estimated only about 15% of the people in the congregation had given to the church 
in the last year. And I'm not saying these things as, as manipulative tools to get you to give more to the church. I'm just saying most of us have a problem that we're not really viewing all that God has given us is something that we need to pass on. That he, the purpose of his blessing us is that we might be a blessing to others. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I mean, I think about our culture and a lot of times when Christian organizations or schools need to raise funds, they do the very thing this text talks about, right? They sell a brick to put your name on it. They name a building after you. They've had their reward. So we need to be a people who are generous, that, that our giving is an act of worship. It needs to be an outward picture of the fact that we're concerned with, for other people, that our concern isn't just getting our own needs met, but it's to take the, the bounty that the Lord's given us and pass it to others. Think about Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, that I will bless you and make you a great nation, and it ends with that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If we walk through a theology of giving in the Bible, what we would realize is that God always blesses that that blessing will, will, will trickle down to others. And so let this text challenge you in two ways. One, Jesus says, when you give, so are you giving? But then second, when you do it, make sure you're doing it with the proper motivation, not a way to demonstrate my spiritual measure or a way to, to demonstrate my status as wealthy but as an act of worship behind the scenes, recognizing what God has given you. Jesus moves on. He says, and when you pray, again, when, certainty, you should. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. There's that word again. The next two passages, Jesus is gonna talk about fasting and prayer. And I believe, in my own heart anyway, that fasting and prayer say more about what we believe about God than almost anything else we can do. If I say I trust and believe and know that God holds my life in his hand and holds the future, how often do I pray? These are things we do in secret. Are they things we do at all? Or is my faith mostly an external thing? Is it mostly a club I belong to or, or, or a scent that I give to the, to the group of people I'm around? What do I do when no one's around? Jesus is going to say, when you pray, don't do it like the hypocrites. What do they do? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. You know, you, you get this image of guys who, you know, in, in, in the first century, a lot of times the Jews, they would collect for two or three times a day for specific prayer. And you almost get the image of guys who would put themselves in a situation so that when it came, became time to pray, it was like, oh, shucks, I'm in the middle of the city square and it's time to pray. So I guess I'll do it right here. Don't be like that, is what Jesus says. Don't let your prayer be something that you're doing so that others will look at you and think what a great spiritual man or woman. When we pray in public, you know, first Thursday prayers, we go in first Thursday prayer, and I know in my heart I'm always wrestling with this idea of, 
of, of do I say the right words? Do I think the right words? Do I encourage the guys in the circle the right way? And this text is a rebuke to that attitude. You're praying to the Lord, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't try to get your praise from men. Don't have them walking away saying, man, that guy can pray like you wouldn't believe. Truly I say to you, there, again, it's the same parallel, almost word for word. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. If you want to impress men, that's it. You've received your reward in full, no, nothing else to pay. I think it's important that we, that, we, uh, that we say here, though, the idea about that receiving their reward in full, not as much about prayer, but about giving, but about teaching, but about exercising any of your gifts. We want to avoid two extremes here, right? We want to avoid the idea that uh, I'm, I'm doing it for the thanks or for the, the pats on the backs of men. That's clear. But we also want to be careful on the other end that if somebody comes up and happens to notice something you did, that you don't shame them. That I had a, I had a professor in seminary that, that was talking about preaching, and he said, you know, sometimes people are going to come up afterwards and say, you did a great job. He's like, don't make them feel stupid for doing that. Just acknowledge and say thank you because the Spirit worked through you, and then you turn and deflect that immediately to the Lord so that it doesn't make you prideful. And I think that can be the case with any external action that we do. People are going to see it. If you're salt and light, people are going to notice it. The fact that people notice it is not a problem. The fact that they thank you or acknowledge that you did a great job is not a problem. If there's anything that's clear in this text, the problem is, what were you seeking if all you thought about as you were preparing to do that activity was that I hope someone sees me and notices, then when they see you and notice, that's all you get. Jesus is saying, examine your heart. Don't do it in front of men for their praise. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. You know, most homes in Galilee when Jesus was preaching this are, are one or two bedroom, or one or two room total homes to begin with. And so he, he, the word he uses here is for storerooms. So some guys will say it's, he's kind of talking about going into the pantry. And he even almost adds on this comical statement and shut the door as if you might even be tempted to go in that room and leave the door open and be more righteous with that. Shut the door and go to your father in secret. The purpose of prayer isn't other people, it's God. And Jesus is not saying we don't engage in corporate prayer. We have plenty of examples of corporate prayer in Scripture. And he's not even saying our prayer has to be in a storeroom because of all the recorded prayers of Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospels, none of them, to my knowledge, are in a storeroom. He's giving you a vivid picture to understand the heart behind prayer, that you're going to God you're talking to God. And so don't do it for men. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so first of all, he, he gives us 
the, 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 the location or, or how we're to pray, but then he tells us to avoid these mantras, that the motivation is to go to God, but the method, he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. The Gentiles would just speak gibberish. They would accumulate names of gods, believing that if they just said the right combinations or the right number of, of God's names, that they might be heard. Don't be like that. It's not about the words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That we're approaching God as one who knows. There's no secret combination of words. You know, I, I know sometimes when I pray, I can tend to almost use the same phrases over and over. And it, and it kind of reminds me that, hey, wait a minute, hold on. You're talking to God. You don't have to have catchphrases in your prayers. That this is my communication with God. Realizing that prayer is an intimate relational thing. What is prayer? Prayer is like the conversation, right? That, that God has communicated with us. How's he done that? He's done it through his word. That can we, re we can read each day. He's done it through his son we can read about and know how he relates to us. So God has communicated regularly to us. Prayer is our response in that communication. The prayer is an intimate engagement with God. It's communication with him. It's relational. Think about it. When Jesus walked the earth, he had no needs. He had no deficiencies. And yet he prayed because he longed for the intimacy with the Father. That should be us. Prayer is an opportunity to engage intimately in relationship with God. And then he gives us a model prayer. We call this the Lord's Prayer. We say it before basketball games. But Jesus really gave this to us as a model. Not, there's nothing wrong with repeating it. You're reciting Scripture. But recognizing this isn't a magic, you know, tiki that we're rubbing so that God will bless us. It's a model for us to understand how to pray. Our Father, He doesn't just say Father. It's not an impersonal term. Our Father, my Father. That we're engaged in relationship, and it's a paternal relationship. That He's the one who provides for us. He's the one that communes with us. It's a cry of faith, not a religious ritual. Our Father, that it comes from the position we've been talking about in the Beatitudes, a position of meekness, a position of humility. Prayer is not an external religious ritual. It's coming before the Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's a concern for God's glory. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we have to do some examining of our own hearts when we work through this prayer. If I'm praying, hallowed be thy name. If I'm praying, thy kingdom come. Am I actually living consistent with that in the daily life and the thing I can affect? Or am I just longing for this pie in the sky thing? 
Now, we can't bring the kingdom here on earth anymore. You know, we can't do that. But am I being faithful to the words I say in my prayer as I seek his kingdom to come? Give us our daily bread. Again, it's a position of dependence that he's the one that provides for our needs. It's certainly an image back to the manna that the Israelites would have gotten every day as they were wandering, as they were coming from Egypt to the promised land, that he provided manna each and every day. And this is an acknowledgement. You know, we live in a spot where most of your pantries are probably full, at least for the next few days worth of food. But do you acknowledge and recognize the need for God that he is your provider, he is your sustainer. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Certainly the idea of debt would have been a strong image there in the first century. But the idea that we're not, that, that we're acknowledging and recognizing our need for his forgiveness and as we receive that forgiveness, we pass that forgiveness on to others. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, God can't lead us to temptation. He can't tempt us. So probably what he's saying here is more the idea that let us not succumb to the testing. That that we're going through testing. Let me not succumb to that testing and sin. You protect me, Lord. He's going to do the same thing later in Matthew 26 with the disciples, right? He's going to tell them to watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. It's the image that he's the one that keeps us from falling. And so as we look at this prayer, just one observation off the the bat is the first three, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done that there's a priority to God and his concerns in this prayer. The later in the prayer, we're going to move to us and we, but he starts with a priority and acknowledgement of of God and, and his concerns. But then he moves to his own petitions. And then he wraps up this section. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others your trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So you tell me I can lose my salvation if I hold a grudge against someone? Is this an absolute conditional statement? I think what Jesus is pointing to is the fact that if you understand the nature of our relationship, our relationship that was based on my dying for your sin, my son dying for your sin, forgiving you. How could you hold a grudge against others? Uh, he looks at this, and if, you, if you'll flip over to Matthew 18, we'll just look real quick. In Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus in verse 21. He says, Peter said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say seven times, but 77 times. Jesus isn't giving us a number here. It's, it's, he's given hyperbole to say, ultimately, you forgive him no matter what. And then Jesus tells a story. He talks about a servant 
The kingdom of heaven might be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. As I understand it, today's money, that's north of $10 billion. And with the cost of silver and gold going up, it's probably escalated since I did the number. Since he couldn't pay, the master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and a payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Yeah, right. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. Can you imagine? I mean, I've got some loans. And if somebody forgave those loans, I would be pretty excited. But $10 billion, I just can't imagine. And, and, and $10 billion with your wife and kids facing being sold into slavery. The relief. And so what does that guy do? He says, so his fellow servant fell down a plea. I'm sorry, I, I, I skipped ahead. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants and owed him 100 denarii, maybe about $15,000, $20,000. Not an insignificant amount, but nothing compared to the other. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And you guys know how this story is going to end. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to jailers until he should pay all his debt. So all my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Those are hard words. But when you listen to the story, you get some perspective for what it is that God's done for us by forgiving us our sin. And so how could we possibly hold back forgiveness from others. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean when we've been wronged, we immediately respond appropriately. It doesn't mean that, that forgiveness isn't a process that has to take place in our hearts. But I think the issue here is more the idea that says, I will not. Have you heard people say that before? I will never forgive this person for this thing. Those are two really different postures, right? This is gonna be hard. It's gonna take time. I'm committed to forgiving. I'll ask the Lord for help in forgiving. I'll consider all that I've done and all that he's forgiven and I'll engage this process of forgiveness versus I will never forgive. If your heart says I will never forgive, then your heart needs to be checked because Jesus gives you no assurance that if, if you who have been forgiven so much can't forgive so little, then you need to check your heart. And that comes at the end of this prayer where Jesus is talking about the intimacy in your relationship with God. You know, this model prayer is meant to, to challenge us, to help us understand. I don't know of any other religion that offers you 
an intimacy and a relationship with God like Christianity and Judaism before that did. That, that, that we have access to God through the blood of Christ to come into his presence and to engage in an intimate relationship. And, and, and he's a God who loves us more than we could ever love him. And so prayer is our response to his speaking to us and through Christ, through his word, when we do it, we're concerned with the needs of God before our own needs. Romans 12, that we're to be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So what about us? Do we pray? Do we communicate with God? Do we set aside time? And, and, and so, so there's the, an idea when we look in the New Testament, we see examples of setting aside time, or like Jesus says here, going into our closet to pray. But we also see the constant interactive fellowship that we should be engaging in as we talk to God throughout the day. The, the prayer is a constant communication that we should be engaged in. You know, I, I remember when I was in, you know, maybe just coming out of college, somebody introduced me to, a, to an effective way to pray. They called it ACTS. Many of you probably are familiar with this, but, but when I sit to pray and I sit to focus prayer, you start with adoration. God is holy. God is righteous. That we praise God for who he is to start with. And then we move to confession. Because God is holy, because I sit in guilt that I confess specifically to God. You know, I've heard it said that, that Satan really wants you to just feel the overwhelming feeling of shame. But when the Spirit convicts you of sin, that he convicts you specifically. So that when I sit and pray, I say, Lord, look through my heart. Find acts, thoughts, motives that are impure in me that I might acknowledge them before you. So the confession is basically just acknowledging with God what he already knows. You know, when I said that thing, when I thought that thought, that I was wrong, God. And then we move to thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for all the things God has done. Thank things in the past, things in the present, things that he did this week for you, things that he did for Israel thousands of years ago that we move into a period of thanksgiving and then we move to supplication, that we present our requests to the Lord. Our request, our community's requests, our people's requests, the world's requests, so that when we sit with God, we do it and we communicate with him in a way that acknowledges who he is. And really, in a lot of ways, what prayer does is prayer shows us who we are and helps us live in light of that constantly. Jesus goes on in verse 16. He says, and when you fast, you're seeing a pattern here. And when, not if, you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Boy, if you want to get credit, let yourself look disheveled. You know, I, I, 
just think about the the sympathy you're invoking in a lot of ways that that, that, that there were guys that wrote about how we tend to take pleasure in the pain of our own penance, that there's almost a joy that we could take as we do penance. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. We don't fast for merely ascetic purposes, right? That, that I'm going to inflict pain on myself because I deserve it, or I'm going to do this thing as an outward sign of my faithfulness to God. That's not what fasting is about. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. There's a wordplay here, the disfigured. There's a wordplay in the Greek, and it basically says, they render themselves unrecognizable so that they'll be recognized. It's a funny idea. But basically, they're doing this so that people will say, what a great man. Can you believe how often he fasts? He fasts twice a week. Well, this guy fasts three times a week. Guess what Jesus is about to say next? I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. We don't, we don't anoint our heads. We typically are trying to dry out our heads, but they would anoint their bodies and heads with oil to, to keep them to keep from drying out. The idea is go out with a clean appearance. Don't let everybody know you're doing this. This is between you and God. Anoint your head with oil. Wash your faith so that your fasting might not be seen by others but of your father who is in secret. Fasting more than any other thing has always been an interesting one for me, though, because I, I feel like this is the one in our culture that we do kind of remember what Jesus says here. And so sometimes it's always this awkward conversation. We're like, hey, can we meet for lunch Wednesday? Well, I can't meet for lunch Wednesday. Why can't we meet for lunch Wednesday? And you get some really weird excuse, and then just through circumstances, you find out later it was because your friend was fasting that Wednesday and he didn't want to tell you or a family member. Again, similar principle to the other times. It's not the point that it's got to be done such secret that nobody can ever find out. It's your motivation. It would be really hard to live in a family where someone's fasting and wonder why they're not coming to the dinner table. Jesus is not trying to create awkward scenarios. He's just telling you, you got to look out what's going on in your heart. And if you're trying to impress people with your fasting, then their applause is all you're going to get. They have received their word in full. So don't do it that you'll be seen by others, but for your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That, that basically, when we think about fasting, fasting is something that we do that is able, unlike any other of our spiritual disciplines, fasting can heighten our need for God or heighten our awareness of our need for God and our desire for God. That, that Donald Whitney says, fasting can be an expression of finding your greatest pleasure and enjoyment in life from God. Think about it, food, drink, you know, and it doesn't have to be a food or drink fast. It can be a fast from entertainment. It can be a fast from any number of things. But the idea is that I'm removing this thing I depend on 
to remind myself that even that thing I most depend on, in this case, food, I don't really depend on as much as I depend on God. And by the way, while I'm feeling the pangs of hunger, I'm remembering that ultimately my greatest need isn't to fill my stomach. My greatest need is God. And fasting has this ability to strip all that away and to show us what it is we actually need and to actually help us readjust our priorities because in that moment of sobriety, we recognize it's really true. I really do need and long. I need, I need God more than I should and I long for God I'm, I'm sorry, I need God more than anything else, and I long for God more than anything else. And if I don't long for God more than anything else, this helps me remember that I need to. That fasting has the ability to strip all that way and to, to help us see more clearly. We don't fast to earn God's favor. We don't fast to show God how sincerely we want this shiny new thing we want. We fast because of our dependence on God and to, to draw into intimacy with Him. It has the ability to focus us. When God said, only as we voluntarily embrace the pain of an empty stomach do we see how much we allowed our belly to be our God. If you're, not, if you're new to fasting, if you haven't fasted before, I would encourage you to start small, skip a meal, skip a lunch. And it's not, the sa- it's not for the sake of, oh, shoot, it's 3 o'clock, I skipped lunch, I'll just call it a fast. But it's more the idea of anticipating ahead. You know, to fast, you really need to be intentional, right? Because if, if you plan to fast and your day is just as full as everything else, it's not, there's not going to be a big impact. You're just going to be hungry and grouchy. But set aside time to go into your prayer closet with God to acknowledge and talk to Him about what's going on. Maybe then you, you stretch out to a day. In the first century, they, it was traditionally sundown to sundown. If you want to do it from morning to night, there's not a prescribed formula in the Bible for how we fast. But it's assumed that we will. And we live in a culture where want, it's not something we experience very often. We live in a land of plenty, and fasting has a unique ability to sort of pull us back to that point to help us acknowledge just how much we need God. That, that basically it's in our acknowledgement that we need God more than we need any other thing that's there. So as we look at these words of Jesus on these three different illustrations, we think about the righteousness that Jesus has been talking about all along. And and, and in this passage particularly, he's dug really deep because now he gets all the way down to my motivation. Why do I do what we do? And he makes the point, if you do, you know, he's not saying don't do the right thing, but he's saying just be forewarned. If you do the right thing for the wrong reason, then you've got all the rewards you're going to get. But if you will look at your heart and you will do this for me, then you'll have ongoing reward. If you want a good resource to to think through um, 
these, some of these issues, especially as we think about prayer and fasting. Uh, kind of the standard work is, is Donald Whitney's uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Um, but there's another resource that I like to recommend that we use in our BTCP program by David Mathis called Habits of Grace. And, and they're both books that kind of deal with these spiritual disciplines. But the thing I like about Mathis's book is it's not so much a, a picture of how um, you do these things, and, and Whitney doesn't either, but, but Mathis is real explicit that we're doing these, these disciplines not to earn God's favor, not to be super spiritual, but we're doing them to avail ourselves of God's grace, to sort of put us in the pathway of God's grace, that this is how I present myself to God and how he shows grace. So in the, in the, in the example of, of fasting, that it enables me to get a better picture and a better understanding of all that God has done and continues to do for me. So I'd encourage you to pick up one of those books and to work through that. Uh, but, but as we go back tonight, really thinking about this passage, thinking about the heart change that Jesus is talking about, we realize that our intent, that our heart, our motivation determines our rewards because really they affect what we really believe. If nobody else in the world knew about it, would you pray? If nobody else in the world would ever find out about it, would you give? So if you could give, if you could not give, and nobody for the rest of your life would know about it, would you still give? Would you pray? Would you fast? That's what Jesus is asking. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the challenge of this sermon. We thank you for the fact that we don't have to live uh, in a system of rote religious external activities, that we don't have to live in a, in a way that that hopes to please you. But that, God, you have saved us, you have justified us, that if we place our faith in your Son, you have forgiven us for all that we do. And Lord, as we read this passage, it, it's a high bar that we can never clear, that none of us have pure motives, top to bottom. But Lord, you make it clear that you that's your desire for our heart. That is the sanctification process that you are doing, that not only would we do the right things, but that we would do them for the right reasons, to please you. So Lord, I pray that our entire lives would be an act of worship that would bring glory to your name. And it's in that name we pray. Amen.